It's the wrong time and the wrong place Though your face is charming, it's the wrong face It's not his face, but such a charming face Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with San Francisco-based jazz bassist, composer, arranger, bandleader, and educator, Marcus Shelby. He opened up about his latest and fifth CD, 2019's Transitions, with his orchestra. His work focuses on the history present and future of African-American lives, social movements, and music education. In the last 15 years, he has written an extensive series of original compositions and suites, as well as orchestrating a broad survey of arrangements from the great composers like Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. Currently, Marcus is an artist-in-residence at the Yerba Buena Gardens Festival and a new resident art director for the San Francisco Jazz Festival 2019-20. to He's full of great stories, so please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, Marcus, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz, man. Oh, no no problem. Thanks for the call, man. I'm, I, I'm excited to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. Hey, so first of all, let's start off here. I've really had some time to take a listen to Transitions, and I just love the full orchestral sound. So I want to know from you, what was the kind of the artistic aim for this album? Well, it was two parts. One is over the last, uh, actually it's three parts, three parts. Over the last five years, I've kind of had this band, consistent personnel. I've had the band for 20 years, but for the past five, I've had this band with Tiffany Austin as our lead singer. And so we've done different shows, SF Jazz to local clubs, uh, churches, Hillsburg Jazz Festival, different things and we, we have a lot of program material but I want this record to kind of represent uh, and document kind of where the band was uh, after this sort of past five years so some of that was arrangements I've done that have featured Tiffany on some of the standards that we all know Duke Ellington, Cole Porter, George Cheering so we have four of those pieces, actually five pieces, including Moody Indigo at the end of the record. I also wanted to kind of document some of the influences for me personally as a, as a composer, and one is that is Duke Ellington, the other one being Charles Mingus. And so uh, I've always been interested in uh, some of the tunes that Mingus has written that perhaps doesn't get a lot of attention or play, one being um, Remember Rockefeller at Attica, and I had actually arranged and reorchestrated that piece for a larger work that uh, I did called Beyond the Blues, and it was all about the prison industrial uh, industry and uh, about the sort of mass incarceration and where we were as a country. This would have been four years ago that we performed this at Yerba Buena Gardens Festival. This piece that Mingus wrote was part of that suite. Uh, other ones that I did were like work song and uh, some other original music around prisons. And so this was a piece that I um, wanted to include on this recording. And also um, On a Turquoise Cloud, it just happens to be one of my favorite Duke Ellington pieces. And Mads Talling is a colleague of mine, and I've gotten the chance to work with him off and on for for, for many years. And so I wanted to invite him to, to, to do this piece in a different way. I mean, it's been sung. Uh, as we know, originally it was sung by the Ellington Orchestra with an opera singer, uh, and it's been redone that way um, several times. We actually did it with one of the young uh, boys from the Pacific Boy Choir, 
but we didn't we didn't release it. They did it, and so I wanted to kind of see what could we do different than having a singer. And Matt calling on violin became a, an interesting choice, and so I called him to do that. And um, and then the last thing, um, and, and not in any particular order, because this is kind of how my career over the last twenty something years is really a little bit of original composition, a little bit of uh, rearranging and uh, reorchestrating. These are two things that I like to do very much. And so the the fourth, the third leg of all of this would be the original pieces that were inspired by the Negro Leagues. And that, that has been something that I've been working on for the last four years. I created an entire suite called the Negro Leagues and the Blues, um, which included clowns, and it also had theatrical components. And we performed that once again at the Yerba Buena Gardens Festival last year. Uh, for the recording, I wanted to record four pieces that sort of represented four cities that were central, not only to the Negro Leagues, Chicago, New York, uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, but was central uh, battlegrounds, if you will, or birth, actually birth grounds of uh, our music, blues and swings from Kansas City, New York, Pittsburgh, Chicago, very distinct styles, very distinct characters that developed those, those histories and those scenes, and, and they continue today. And so there's this sort of symbiotic, almost parallel history for me uh, in doing this research between the birth of the Negro Leagues, which happened in 1920 with Rube Foster, and sort of the, the birth of the blues as a in particularly organized blues in the sense of when it was recorded, Betsy Smith, Ma Rainey, Alberta Hunter, um, all of these early blues singers and this sort of parallel industry of how African Americans sustained uh, and how they lived and how they supported not only Negro League baseball, but also this fledgling new style of music that was now just being recorded and then ultimately turning into what we call jazz. And so that became very uh, interesting sort of connector for me. It even goes back earlier when you look at some of the earlier blues forms championed in the late 19th century is really where you start seeing uh, activity of some of the early Negro League ball players like Fleetwood Walker, who was actually the first African American to play in the major leagues. So, and then ironically and interesting enough, the Negro Leagues broke up after Jackie Robinson was uh, was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1947. Um, and that's where you also see kind of the you know music changing, you know, particularly when it comes to the style called jazz. Big bands began to break up a little bit earlier, right after the war. So it's man, it's, the histories are so parallel and they're so uh, inspirational to me as my interest. I really love music as a musician, obviously, but also really love the history of baseball and, in particular, the Negro League. So that's where the, the sort of the three point inspiration behind this recording. As a big band leader, as a uh, sort of self produced artist, uh, I don't really have the luxury of recording uh, a lot you know, as far as any time an idea comes to mind. So when I do have the opportunity, when I do can go in the studio and bring in the, the cats and, and do a recording, then I'm trying to maybe capture as much as I can in the moment of the, where the band has been for the last five years. You know, it just instantly flashed to my head being here in Kansas City with uh, the Negro Leagues, and we have the Hall of Fame by the American Jazz Museum. 
I take my son. Oh. Yeah, my son's fourth. I didn't know you were out of Kansas City. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and cool. it's funny because cool. you're, you're – yeah, totally. And we're, we're immersed in that. And I always take my son, who's Miles, named after Miles Davis and his friend, and we go down, mm-hmm. to, eight, we go down to 18 and Vine, and there's a little baseball field they built in honor of the Negro Leagues Museum. Oh, yes. And I'm familiar. I'm familiar yeah, and we play baseball on that, and there's a big mural of uh, Buck O'Neill, and then the Monarchs are on the wall, and, and every time we're down there, we play this wiffle ball game, and my son wants to whiz it over the fence, and he hit it last time we were down there, and some car passed by, and they started hooping and hollering. It's pretty cool down there. It's good. You feel the history. You feel the good, and it's cool to be down there around all of that, because you got the Jazz and the Negro Leagues Nexus just kind of right there in the middle of the world, so it's cool. For sure. Wow. Wow, man. Yeah. I, I, um, I had no idea. And I, it sounds like you probably have a lot of common interest in. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I'm a big baseball fan, too. So, yeah, I got a big reference. And yeah. whenever we're down there, I always talk to him about Buck. And Buck, uh, he's probably one of the biggest heroes here in Kansas City, man. They have a Buck O'Neill seat at Kauffman Stadium. And that's where mm-hmm. you scout the teams. And every night they let somebody sit there. And they always talk about Buck. I mean, he, he left an impression on this town that, Wow. It'll never go away. Yeah. So I am. Um, um, I you know I've seen a lot of that online about Buck O'Neill and his interviews. I know he's passed on, but I do see the love that he gets there in Kansas City, and and I I do realize how insp- uh, in, uh, instrumental he was in getting that museum built. Yeah, without a doubt. So so I want to move on with you. You're in San Francisco, but where were you born and raised? I was born in Alaska. You know, I'm, I'm 53 years old. My dad was in the Vietnam War. Uh, we were stationed there. So I don't have any co- real connections with Alaska other than that's where we were stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base. But we left soon after about a year, and uh, we, we got stationed. My, my folks, my family is from Memphis, Tennessee. That's my roots. I've gone back and forth when I was a kid. But I grew up in Sacramento, California because that's where we got stationed, McClellan Air Force Base. And um, so I went to high school there. I played sports. I played music, but I didn't know. I didn't really, I had no aspirations of professional music. I didn't know anybody doing it. No one in Sacramento that I knew really was playing music professionally. But uh, in, growing up in the 80s, I wanted to be Michael Jordan. So I was all about basketball and football and baseball and track. And, but that's where I grew up. And, it did, and let me just kind of fast forward. Uh, I, I got a basketball scholarship to go to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. I played for four years. In my last year, I studied electrical engineering. In my last year, I went to a Wynton Marcellus concert. I, I just on a whim. I didn't really know Wynton Marcellus. I wasn't playing music. I was still kind of uh, uh, kind of into sports and and studying electrical engineering, barely, barely just making it in engineering. I was a horrible student, but that's, that was sort of where I was. And my dad told me about this young trumpeter. He said, hey, you should go check him out for no reason at all, not because he thought I should get into music. I went and checked him out. I took a date. I went with a friend. And I, I can tell you it was one of those moments where, you're, where my entire life just changed hearing that music. I didn't understand it. I hadn't been involved in music, wasn't listening to jazz. But it was something. So 
something spoke to me very deeply. Uh, it wasn't just Winton. It was Bob Hurst on bass. It was Jeff Tane Watts on drums. It was Marcus Roberts on piano. It was the whole ensemble. And it was the style. It was the articulation. It was this sort of spiritual force that was like, wow. I, and after that concert, I didn't even say, wow, I want to play again. I said, I want to listen again. I want to learn more about this. And I started listening, so I picked up some records. And a year later, I saw Winton was playing at the Long Beach Jazz Festival. I look, I'm 20 years old now, 21. I go to the Long Beach Festival. I hear the band. Same thing happened to me again. I'll never forget that concert because Bob Hurst broke a string. I'll get back to that later. And so um, I'm like looking at it, and I'm like, okay, this is weird. I want to play music. And I came back. I found a bass. I'm kind of fast forward. Um, I wasn't very good in engineering, and I didn't really have a – I didn't even see how I was going to be an engineer because I didn't really understand it. I just kind of pushed my way through school, played basketball. But this had changed me. And I said, this is something I want to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I got a job for JPL, Jet Proportion Laboratory in uh, Pasadena. I took the job. I'm like, well, let me just go down there. I don't really didn't have any other options. Um, but when I got there, the first thing I heard about was Billy Higgins' jazz work. Uh, the World Stage, Billy Higgins Workshop in Lemert Park. I went down there. Again, I'm not a very good musician at this point. I could I played in high school, but I hadn't played in four years. I started playing when I was in college a little bit. By the time I got to Billy Higgins Workshop, everything changed. I started playing every day. I picked up. I I I I didn't even. I stopped. You know. I told the the, the Jet Proportion Laboratory. I said, you know what, this is not for me. I applied for a scholarship to go to CalArts. I got one. I studied with Charlie Hayden. I studied with James Newton, composition. I was basically studying with Billy Higgins and anybody else who came to the world stage. I met um, Willie Jones III, Gilbert Castellanos. We started a band called Black Note. We signed with Columbia Records. We uh, recorded four CDs. We toured with Winton. In 1994, things kind of came full circle at that point. Uh, our band broke up in 96 after we did a record with Impulse. And then um, I moved to San Francisco. And so I've been here 23 years. And in those 23 years, was, you know, it's like when we broke up in 96, Wood, uh, Willie Jones III, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him, he moved to New York. Uh, and so did uh, some other cats in our band, James Mahone, Gilbert went to San Diego, uh, I didn't really think I was ready for New York as a as a performer, and so I, I and as a as a composer, which really my interests lie, and but I wasn't writing big band music. I was nowhere near that, and so I was like, let me go to San Francisco. I knew some people up here. I knew I could kind of come up here, shed, get my things together, you know, spend as long as I needed to to learn how to write music. And I hooked up with the Intersection for the Arts, which is a, a nonprofit here. They help support uh, the projects. In 1998, I started my big band. So that's kind of a quick catch-up from where I was born to how I got to San Francisco. Right on. So at this point right now, obviously things have worked out. You're going to be the artistic director for the San Francisco Jazz Fest in 2019-20. So many things are going on. How how do you how do you perceive your career up to this point? How it's progressed, how it's evolved. Well, I can tell you this: I've always been very patient. Um, maybe it's because you know a lot of the musicians that I know 
and that I work at, you know, they kind of knew when they were very young that they were going to play music. They knew that, um, you know, they were going to go to the right school, and I didn't. I kind of took another path. And so when I decided I was going to play music, I knew it was going to take a while. I knew that I had a lot of catching up to do as a, a bass player and as a composer. I felt like, you know, this is a path I could take. It takes some hard work. It's going to take some study. Um, and I was lucky to hook up with James Newton because I learned and was inspired greatly by him. So where I'm at, I, you know, it's like in the middle of this long-term plan and, and or yeah or idea of what it means to be an artist in a community not just a musician or not even just a band leader but in the community because outside of running my band now for 20 something years I also uh, I'm on the arts commission I also uh, teach in you know, as a teaching artist in many different schools from elementary uh, all the way up to the Stanford Jazz Workshop Jim Nadell's program I've been doing that for 15 16 years um, and then I'm an artist in residence at Gilbert Buena Gardens Festival, artist in residence at the Hillsburg Jazz Festival, and now uh, next week I start my uh, residency at for San Francisco Jazz Festival. Now, I've been working with San Francisco Jazz Festival for 20 years, from mainly in their education. Uh, I've been doing a lot of their family matinee concerts. I've done a lot of their in-school programs. Uh, and I've been able and fortunate enough to do concerts for them throughout the years uh, as a sideman on traveling artists or even uh, fronting my own bands. And just patiently kind of waiting and, and, and building and, and not expecting anything and just sort of working these ideas. And for me, as a composer, is to, to try to document history. That's just sort of been my inspirational connection. Important things in history, particularly African-American history. That's something that I've been interested in because I've learned a lot about not only U.S. history, but myself uh, and where I came from and how I got to where I am and the world that I live in and the reality of that and choosing these projects. Uh, so the big band now has recorded five CDs. We did one on Harriet Tubman. I spent four years researching her life, going to where she was born, going to where she passed away, meeting with scholars and people who have kept her history there, visiting all the monuments and whatnot, uh, meeting the author who wrote the book that I based my piece off of, um, and just sort of immersing myself not only in geography but in her story and then creating the oratory I wrote, Harriet Tubman, Bound for the Promised Land. Same thing with the last project that we did. That was two projects ago. The last one we did, which we <laughs> we released seven years ago, it's been a while, uh, was called Soul of the Movement, of Meditations on Dr. Martin Luther King. And so the same thing. That started off was, you know, I feel like I don't know enough about King. I feel like I just know the basic things that everybody should know. So let me do a musical project on it. It's going to force me to do the homework. And so I spent three years on that, which included going to the Deep South, um, and visiting for two weeks all the monuments, all the hot spots from Montgomery to Selma to um, Jackson, Mississippi, to Little Rock, Arkansas, Memphis, Tennessee, and just sort of visiting the museums and meeting people and looking at trying to learn more about the local histories there. And then spent a summer at Chicago at the uh, Columbia Black Music Research Center uh, studying music forms, uh, studying music of the civil rights movement, uh, and I had a residency at Columbia. And so that was a summer, and that was very cool because that 
that put me in touch with a lot of archival music. And then being in Chicago for the summer was incredible, and being in that scene. And so that was the same thing, kind of put my, immersing myself in history, immersing myself in geography, and then coming back and, and then composing music about it. And then trying to find opportunities within institutions where I could spend two years, three years doing research. And that kind of brings me to this, rec this uh, recent project, Black Ball, the Negro Leagues in the Blues. Uh, I've been working on that for three years. Um, and I've always had an interest in baseball, but it got amped up when I started studying the, um, the Negro Leagues and just sort of that particular component of overall baseball. I love Major League Baseball as an entire sort of organization. <laughs> but the Negro Leagues is a historical moment in, in all of this and learning about life outside of baseball for these players, uh, what was happening in the world around these players, uh, learning things about the importance. Like we all celebrate Jackie Robinson and for a good reason. But there are other people who were, to me, just as important, like Rube Foster, uh, and, you know, to people like who you just mentioned, Buck O'Neill, and, and many other great players that sometimes you don't hear about because Jackie Robinson came at a certain time. And so that's been a three-year where I, I signed up for, I mean, I'm a, a member of Sabre, you know, so I go to the conferences and, you know, I follow all the games, you know, I follow all the teams. I, I go to spring training. I saw the Royals actually at spring training, and they played the Giants in one game. And so – and I, I'm mad that you guys got Hamilton. I wanted Billy Hamilton to come to the, to the Giants, but I digress. Anyway, so <laughs> it's just sort of being in the – being, you know, kind of almost like a method actor might become um, that thing that they're going to portray on stage while they're in that, that moment. And so I try to become that, you know. I mean, I, 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 I spend time in prisons when I was working on that project. I still do. It's hard to kind of leave. Once that project was over, it wasn't just about that time. But once I got I started going to juvenile hall, I still do monthly visits there. Same thing with, you know, obviously with baseball. I'm always playing baseball. I have kids. They play. I go to all the Giants home games. Well, not all of them, but I go to at least 50 of them a year. And then um, whatever it is, it's just sort of I kind of get amped up of being in, immersing myself in that. You know, in, in the realm of education, whether it's in the classroom or on the bandstand, you learn a lot, and you learn a lot from seeing live shows. What was one of the first live jazz shows you ever saw that really moved you? Well, um, again, I have to tell you, the one that really, really hit me was the Wynton Marcellus concert in Sacramento at the Radisson Inn. It must have been 1988. And I, I told you all the reasons why. I didn't, I, can't even, I didn't even understand the music. It was just this... There's these four young men who kind of looked like me with suits on and just spitting out this music that was sophisticated. It was cool. And it made me look good because I had a date that night. I was like, Rams, you must think I, I must be sophisticated. <laughs> but that, that concert really moved me. If, when you're talking about jazz, you know, I've gone to, when I was younger, I remember going to see um, other concerts that, out of outside of the, the musical realm of jazz. But, that one, if I was walking to the left, I started walking to the right after that. I, I'm seriously, I was like, uh, everything just changed for me there. I, I can, I remember it like it was yesterday. I just, I wanted to be 
You know what? After that concert, I wanted to listen to the music. I can't even say I wanted to be a musician because I didn't even see how that could happen. It's like someone going, you know, I don't want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer. I, you know, I didn't even see how that could happen. But I started listening, started getting into my soul a little bit. I went and got some records. I remember going to, I was in San Luis Obispo, and I went to this, our only record store at the time was a place called Boo Boo Records. I remember walking in there after that Went Marcellus concert, and I was like, you know, I need to buy some jazz, but I don't know who to get. This is where I was, man. I was not, I didn't grow up like some of these young cats I'm playing with now. I, I was way late. I was like, I want to, you know, and the dude, you know what he, he suggested I get? Jeff Lorber Fusion. Wow. So I got the cassette. I didn't know. What was I? I mean, I didn't know. So I got the cassette. I took it home, and I put it, you know, I'm, I, at the point I was hungry. I just wanted anything. I listened to it, and for some reason it wasn't the same as what I heard at the Woodman Show's concert. I'm like, something's not right. This ain't the same huh. thing. I didn't, I didn't say it was bad. I just, it wasn't the same thing that touched me, that swing, that sort of guttural swing that wasn't there. So I went back, I don't know, maybe a couple months, and I, I, I found somebody else. It's like, no, I, need, I actually need, I need some jazz, right? You know what they gave me? They gave me the Harper Brothers. Remember the Harper Brothers? Yeah, yeah. So they gave me that first record. So this must have been like 89 and that was it. I was like, yes, this is what I'm looking for. So, you know, as a young musician, you start there, and then everything after that became Monk and Train, and I just kept going back and back and back, further back. You know, it's like you start on the, on the top of the tree, and you got to keep going until you get to the root. And so that, that, that concert put everything in motion for me. Cool. So everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans colleagues but you know who you are best tell me who do you think you are man i don't know it's so hard i i can tell you i i at being 53 i've learned a lot as we all do when you get older uh, and particularly when it comes to perception and so that's a very difficult question for me because i think what i'm trying to project is unselfishness uh, giving. That's what I'm trying to. That's what I'm trying to. I'm, it can't, you're not always successful, and particularly if you are perceived to be a leader in a situation like leading a band or even having the honor to be, or as, to be um, a resident director for SF Jazz or if you're, you know, kind of fed it in these ways, I'm always kind of self-conscious about that and trying to find a way to kind of even tamper it down because uh, again, my goal is a very long-range goal, and it has nothing to do with with much other than trying to grow as a composer, dream, think about what Duke Ellington and, and, and some of these great people who've left us this legacy of what's possible, use what's happening today as a as source material. Um, I understand the reality of the record business. You know, it's not like it was when I was, 23 years old signing with Columbia, those labels aren't around anymore. I remember Verve and Blue Note and Columbia and Arista. There was a lot of labels. Now you've got to do it yourself. And if you've got a big band, you really got to do it yourself. And so the reality is do it yourself and, and, and dream and, 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 and believe and work with good people. 
even my whole mentality as a leader has changed. I know I'm kind of going away from your question a little bit. It's, it's kind of difficult, but even this is the perception that I try to portray is this sense of fairness. And also, even my band, you know, when I first started, I didn't think about hiring and, and, and the perception of hiring, you know. And you, know, you look up and you see maybe 15 men in the band. But, you know, that might be cool. But, but as I've gotten older and I've seen, you know, the possibilities that lie out there, there's no way I can just have a band of just one type of person. And so I'm, I am consciously looking for young women, older women, men, black, white, young, old, different cultural perspectives, because I believe music is not a function of strength. It's a function of creativity. And big bands, I'm talking about big bands in particular, when you, you, know, when you can find a diverse set, so this is all about perception, is to proactively find a diverse a palette of which you can create. And so I feel like over the last five years, I have grown because I've been trying to be conscious about that, even as a perception of having almost like a village, you know, a good village. You have great elders, you have young people, you have a diverse, and even more so, and this is where you and I will, will, will agree, it's like a team. The best teams have great young prospects. They have good vets. They have good role players. Every good team has their superstars. And then you've got to know kind of how to mix that. And so I watch Bruce Bochy all the time. <laughs> he, you know, Bruce Bochy is an old-school coach. He's kind of the outdated coach. You know, those coaches are kind of going out of, out of, out of fashion. And you got these new type of coaches, you know, the, the Kapler, the Gabe Kaplers, the, the, the Coras, the Boons, the Andy Greens in San Diego, where they're using analytics, but they also have this very keen eye of personnel uh, and, yeah. and what their talents bring and, you know, and how to mix that. And so, hey, man, I'm trying to adapt that on the bandstand. So I've got my drummer 16. My, uh, one of my trombone players is 70, you know, uh, my, uh, one of my trumpet players is a young lady. I think she's in her first year at UOP. My lead alto player is a young lady who has a great deal of experience and has played with everyone. And so it's been that sort of mixture of, 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 uh, as when you talk about perception, that's the thing that has opened it up for me. Beautiful. That's a great answer, man. Hey, Marcus, thank you for taking some time out for Neon Jazz today, man. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, man. It's great talking to you. And take cool. care. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and composers in San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Marcus for his class, his music, and his cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.